morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you for being out here. Uh, you guys are faith heroes, uh, anchoring these tents and uh, singing in the wind, sending in the midst of the wind. Ryan, I love that, uh, that metaphor of the Spirit uh, sending these people out to Santa Ana. And uh, yeah, what a moving, moving morning. I, I'm, a, I'm a little choked up in more ways than one. We've just said goodbye to my folks there at LAX now. They've been with us for a month. And so the mix of sending our friends to Santa Ana and sending my folks back to South Africa, pretty choked up. Um, and uh, certainly my pain was not helped by JD's Green Bay Packers hat. Um, the pain of the, the Rams losing yesterday anyway. But uh, really looking forward to walking with Miss Emma in this incredible, incredible story about Jesus, the friend of sinners. Remember last uh, week we talked about how the Pharisees accused Jesus of being uh, a friend of sinners and how he wore that insult as a badge of honor. And now we see an example of how he welcomes and eats with a sinner in the presence and the company of very righteous people. And not only a friend of sinners, but an amazing forgiver of sinners. Uh, so we're going to talk today about not just Jesus, the incomparable friend of sinners, but Jesus, the incomparable forgiver of sinners. So follow with me in your sermon notes. This will help you. This will help me to help you stick your hand up if you don't have one. Uh, and on one side is the actual passage I'm preaching from. On the other side is the sermon bullet points. You can take some notes. It'll, it'll help you. And uh, let's go. Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what, of, what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And that word sinner is uh, not just a broad bad person. Um, some translations say a woman of bad repu reputation. The original is hamartos, which means someone whose lifestyle makes them hostile to God. And uh, most commentators agree that she was either a promiscuous woman or otherwise a prostitute, a woman of the night, this sinner. And, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And then Jesus tells the story. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, 
are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. If I was telling this story like kind of a Dr. Seuss vibe, I would call it when a sinner interrupts your dinner because it rhymes like that, right? But this is a very comfortable dinner setting. It doesn't just say Simon the Pharisee was eating. It says Jesus was reclining. Can you say reclining? Think of a recliner. You know, I love dinners around the table, but there are few things that irritate me more than a dining room table chair that like digs into your back. You know what I'm saying? That's too upright. I mean, can you feel me on this one? It's just like, it just wants, makes you wanna to go to the lounge and lounge. But this was around a table, but it was a reclining kind of setting. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants is a, a Japanese yakitori restaurant in, in Carson called Shensengumi. Any, any of you been there? Oh, you're missing out. It's fantastic. It's, it's like uh, yakitori where you have these little Japanese things over coals, but it's on the floor. So you have to sit on the floor, but there's these reclining cushions and, and it's amazing. And when the commentators describe how Jewish people ate back then, that's what they do. They'd have these low tables. You wouldn't have your feet under the table. You'd, you'd kind of sit with your feet uh, folded behind you and you'd recline with your elbow on the table like this. It wasn't rude to have your elbow on the table. And that's what was happening. Jesus' feet were behind him. That's why the woman came in and behind Jesus began to wash the feet. It was customary for an honored guest to have their feet washed, but Jesus had not had his feet washed by Simon, which tells you something about Simon. And so when Simon welcomed Jesus in, well, it was a comfortable setting but the comfortable setting was made very awkward and very uncomfortable by this woman. And Luke says, and behold, behold. In other words, suddenly there was a surprise. This woman who wasn't supposed to be there, rabbis, and Jesus was called teacher, a rabbi. A rabbi was never supposed to eat with a woman and a Pharisee was never supposed to eat with a woman of ill repute. And so behold, this woman, I oh, just imagine the awkward silence around this reclining, comfortable setting. And suddenly Simon is guilty by association because actually if Jesus welcomes this woman who's promiscuous or a prostitute and actually doesn't chase her out, then it seems like he as well is a friend of sinners and he doesn't wanna be a friend of sinners. Put yourself in Simon's place for a while. Most Pharisees were hostile towards Jesus. Simon was actually hospitable towards Jesus. And now he's going to be guilty by association. So he doesn't want Jesus to welcome this woman. And he does. And to make matters worse, she starts to commit an act that seems scandalous and almost sexual. She lets down her hair in Jewish law, if a woman, a wife, let down her hair in public, it was as scandalous as exposing breasts. A man could divorce his wife for letting down her hair in public because it was an intimate act. And so she comes in, she's weeping. She is, she's, she's weeping so much she can wash his feet with her tears and then dries them with her hair and then takes this very expensive bottle of perfume. Uh, prostitutes would wear them around their neck like jewelry and the, and the aroma would allure men to her. So this was a very, very scandalous act. 
And Jesus receives it with absolute purity. She is loving me. She is not alluring me. She is loving me, he says. And so it's an incredibly awkward moment. I think before we go on, it challenges us in terms of who we would associate with. Because every single one of us would have some sort of person in society that we would say it would be scandalous to have a meal with them. It might not be a prostitute. It might be an addict. It might be a Packers fan. <laughs> it might be someone of the opposite political leaning. So would you ever recline at table with a US Capitol insurrectionist? Would I or you ever recline at table with an Antifa member? Luke is inviting us to think of the people that scandalize us. Someone who's an addict or a convicted criminal or a child abuser or someone who's just like, Ugh! and actually says, Jesus welcomes these people and is willing to be guilty by association with, the, with them. Will we be Jesus or will we be Simon? That's what the text is asking us. And so then you see not just this awkward dinner, but you see this critical host. I want us to just engage our, our mind here because if we do just a quick reading, it seems like Simon's a good guy. He's hospitable to Jesus. But when we realize he welcomes Jesus to a point, but doesn't wash his feet, we realize he is holding Jesus at arm's length, right? He doesn't kiss him. He doesn't wash his feet. In other words, he's saying, I'm with him, but not really. Simon was much more just a curious host. And I want us to see that the contrast between Simon's curiosity and this woman's commitment. And this moment is a crisis that exposes the different approaches that they have. And we know that Simon is actually guarded because while this act of weeping and wiping and kissing and pouring is happening, Simon is having a conversation with himself. And you know when you're with someone and you're critical of them and you're jumping to conclusions, you're not asking them, you're jumping to conclusions inside about who they are. Have you ever been like that? That's what Simon was saying. He was saying, well, if this guy was really a prophet, he would know that the sinner is touching him. He's having this conversation with him and saying, Jesus can't be legit. And Jesus is amazing. It says, and Jesus answering him, answering him. I mean, he didn't say anything. He's having a private, silent conversation. Jesus jumps into his thoughts and answers what he's saying. In other words, he is a prophet and more than a prophet, amen? And he reads his mind and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> I wanna say when Jesus says, I have something to say to you, it's like he's gonna chuck a grenade at you that's gonna blow your mind. So start running. And Simon's just like, say it, teacher, bring it on. He doesn't know what is about to hit him. But before we go into what Jesus does actually say, I want us to contrast Simon's kind of curiosity with this woman's commitment. Simon's, well, I'm hosting you, but I'm holding you at arm's length and, and holding my cards close to my, my chest versus this woman's absolutely abandoned, extravagant love. 
See, I think often in the church, we think, well, there's two kinds of approach to Jesus. One is really hostile and hateful, and the other is really worshipful and faithful. But actually, there's a third. Because all of us here are in the presence of Jesus, approaching Him some way. But there's a third way that we can approach Jesus. And it's, I'm here, I'm actually reclining with you, but man, not too far. I'm not gonna wash your feet. I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna kneel at your feet. I'm not gonna be committed. Now, some of us would really co connect to this very moving scene, which is romantic. It's, it's worshipful. But I was thinking like, what happens if we don't connect to this? And I was speaking to my son, who's a football player, and I was saying, Ash, help me with the vocabulary of this. But let me give you a completely different example that contrasts curiosity versus commitment. If you are a linebacker playing football, a linebacker is there to stop the offense moving forward. And there is a moment after the snap where the quarterback has not either thrown or moved where the linebacker has to make a split second decision. Either they have to commit to the run and run forward, or otherwise they have to commit to the pass and run backwards. And in that moment of committing either forwards or backwards, you are vulnerable. If I run forward for, forward for the run, I could be look so stupid as the quarterback throws over my head. If I commit backwards for the pass, I could look so stupid as the running back runs for a touchdown. Here's the deal. Commitment equals vulnerability. And this woman was a picture of commitment and vulnerability. She walked into a place she had no business being. She didn't defend herself. She knew she was a sinner. She had sins that she'd forgotten that people knew nothing about. And she knew she would be judged for walking into a Pharisee's house. But she loved so much. She was so aware of this amazing act of forgiveness and mercy. She was just saying, I'm committed and I will be vulnerable. Contrast her with Simon, who's in the space, but whoa, I'm not gonna wash your feet. I'm gonna have a conversation with myself. I'm gonna jump to conclusions. I'm gonna be cynical, even though I'm curious. I wanna say, beloved, today, you and I have to make a split second decision. Either we commit or otherwise we hang in no man's land. Commitment is vulnerability. But that linebacker who's committed actually gets the play. And Jesus is saying, will you be someone who is committed? And you'll be vulnerable in that moment, but you'll actually get the play. Amen? And so Jesus is saying, don't be like Simon. Be like this woman. And then thirdly, what we see, we see most of all, the exposing of Jesus' heart as a forgiving Savior, a forgiving Savior. And so as he tells this very short parable about two people who have a debt they cannot pay, one is 50 denarii, which is like a month's wages, other 500, a year's wages, whatever it is, whether it's a month or a year, they can't pay it. And this gracious person who is owed the money actually forgives the debt. And he just says to Simon, which one will love, my, love more? Well, the one who had a year's worth of debt. And he's saying, she loves much. She is committed and abandoned and extravagant, doesn't care about judgment because she understands she has a debt that she cannot pay. She's saying, I am a great sinner, but I have met a great savior. And that actually reveals the amazing gospel where Jesus, you know, Jesus' final words on the cross were tetelestai, 
which is it is paid in full. It is finished. He lived a sinless life, died an innocent death, not to pay for his own debt, but to pay for our debt. It is finished. And he's saying, those of us who recognize that we have a debt we cannot pay, when we realize that he paid the debt, there is nothing, there will be nothing to stop our bold love. She is forgiven much. And some of you say, well, how do I know that she repented? How do I know she wasn't just like hoping that Jesus would bless her and then carry on with her sinful life? This is how we know. She took her tools of the trade, this jar of perfume, which was like alluring jewelry around her neck. In another part of the gospel, when a prostitute did this, it said it was worth a year's wages. This could be like a $20,000 worth of perfume. And she pours the tools of the trade out on Jesus' feet. In other words, she's saying, no more, Jesus. She repents. And Jesus says, she understands that she is forgiven much. Now, now we know why she came. Now we know she, why she was committed. Because she had a death that was removed. She had a shame covered over. She had a heart that was renewed. She had a future that was sealed. At last, she had the affection of the most pure man. She was forgiven much. I love that quote of John Newton, the slave trader who repented and wrote that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. And as he grew older, he said, my memory is growing dimmer as I grow older, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner and I have a great savior. This is what this woman would have been thinking. Oh, I have met someone's mercy that is greater than my sin. She understood instinctively what Psalm 103 said, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is the measure of his great love. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he taken my sins from me. That's what Jesus was doing, much forgiven. She would have resonated with Isaiah 1, come let us reason together, though your sins be red as scarlet, they will be whiter than snow. Jesus doesn't, doesn't just pay the debt we cannot pay. He actually removes our shame, gives us a new, a new heart, removes those bad memories. So often one of the reasons why we can't worship with abandon and freedom as we gather is shame, and it's often sexual shame. And I just wanna encourage you that actually you and I have been forgiven much. None of us have sinned in a way that God just says, sorry, my mercy is just not big enough for that sin. There's only one sin that Christ's mercy cannot forgive. And it's the inability to recognize that I need forgiveness. You see, culture would have looked at this woman and said, oh, she's the great sinner. She's the 500 denarii debt. And Simon is respectable, he's the 50. But actually Simon was the greatest sinner because even though he was respectable, he sinned in that he didn't recognize his need for forgiveness. The only sin that Christ's mercy cannot cover over is the refusal to repent and accept forgiveness. And so will you today accept Jesus, great mercy. I am a great sinner but I have a great savior, amen? amen. 
And so there is this call to see Jesus as this amazing forgiving Savior. And then there's a challenge that forgiveness actually looks like something. It doesn't look like just relief and I carry on living as I, as I am. Forgiveness equals this radical awakening that, oh my gosh, I'm forgiven much. Now I'm gonna love much. I tell you why very often in church, there's not this extravagant kind of love. There's a lot of forgiving, but not much loving. We often quite lukewarm in our love. I tell you why, it's because we grade sins. And I've heard so many people, I've grown up in a Christian home myself and at times felt like, if only I had like this radical testimony where I was a pimp and a drug dealer and I had a Damascus Road experience and then I really know that Jesus forgave this massive debt and then I really love, but I've got this kind of lukewarm thing where as a 13 year old at the back of a youth rally, I just felt the need for forgiveness and love and so Jesus forgave my sins, so thank you, but I don't have much of a story. How many of you feel like that? And so we kind of have a bit of an insipid response to Jesus. I wanna tell you, it's a misunderstanding of the problem of sin. Because if we realize that the wages of sin is death, we realize whether we are small sinners or great sinners, we've all got this big problem. We're dead in our sins. Ephesians 2 says, all of us were dead in our sins, but Christ being rich in mercy, raised us from the dead. I got to know a mortician a few years ago in England, and I asked him about kind of the, the, the corpses that he worked on. You, some of you are going gross, but, but there's a point here. And he said something like this. He said, you know what? Some corpses I, I get are pretty dead and others are ugly dead, but they're all dead. They're all dead. In other words, some of us feel in terms of the life we've lived, we kind of pretty, we look good on the outside like Simon, but actually we still are dead in our sins. We need not just some life improvement, we need to be resurrected from the dead. You might have one corpse, outlandish example, where a woman looks at herself in the mirror, she just like thinks, oh, this is terrible. She takes off her stiletto heel, throws it at the wall, bounces off, hits her rib, punches her lung, she's dead. She looks real pretty in that mortician's lab, but she's dead. And then you get another guy who's part of a drug deal and he gets shot up, his intestines blown out. He is ugly dead, but both of them are dead, dead, dead. Right? Can you say with me, dead, dead, dead? And when we realize whether we were pretty dead or whether we were ugly dead, Christ in His mercy paid a debt that we couldn't pay. The wages of our debt was death and raised us from the dead. All of us will say, I am a great sinner and I have a great Savior. None of us will be waiting for a worse story. We're saying, oh, I'm stiletto dead, but I'm still dead. And Christ raised me from the dead. When we realize, even if we were stiletto dead, that Christ was merciful, we will love richly. Will you please stop frowning at your testimony and wishing it was worse and just accept His lavish mercy that He paid the debt you and I could not pay. Even if you owed a month of debt, you couldn't pay it. He removed your shame. He cleansed you. He gave you right standing with God. He secured your future. He gave you a new heart. That is reason to love much. You are forgiven much. Amen? Amen. 
And you know, as I land, the phrase that Jesus used that just got me, it, it hit me in the solar plexus, was this when he said to Simon, Simon, you have not kissed me or washed my feet, but that lady, she, since, I, since, since she entered in, she has not ceased kissing me. And I just sense the Holy Spirit convict me and say, Alan, when did you stop kissing Jesus' feet? When did we stop kissing Jesus' feet? She has not stopped kissing me. But for many of us who've known the rush and the relief of forgiveness and the presence of Jesus, there's a time when we stop kissing his feet. Doesn't mean we hate him. Like Simon, we can be reclining with him. We can be hosting him. We can be here, but we're kissing someone else's feet. I just want to say, beloved, you and I, you know that, that, that old hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. There's a moment where we say, oh, Jesus, I, I like you, but I've been kissing someone else's feet or something else's feet. I've been kissing the feet of Korea. I've been kissing the feet of affection from people. I had a guy come to me after the 8.30, he says, I've been kissing my own feet. I'm a narcissist, he said. Kissing the feet of money. Some of us kissing the feet of politics. Very often, it's, it's things that are good things. They, they're not always terrible, sinful things, but they're things that are good, that have become ultimate, and now we're just kissing their feet instead of Jesus' feet. And there's a moment where we just say, I'm sorry, Jesus, I've stopped kissing your feet. I'm coming back. And he is so gracious. He is so merciful. He never said, well, I'm not gonna allow those dirty lips to kiss my feet. He just says, come, bring it, bring it. We're doing this 10-week series on revival. And I wanna ask each one of you to, if you're in a life group, stay at it because you're gonna be doing the revival curriculum. If you're not, sign up. My wife and I are doing one on Wednesday in our backyard. We've got lots of space. JD's got lots of space. Many people, Christina, I think is doing online, lots of space. Sign up. But I wanna say, that a great definition, I would say, of revival would be this, when the church realizes they are much forgiven and they start to kiss Jesus' feet again. That's the beginnings of revival. That's the beginnings of revival. And you know, when we do that, we receive a peace that passes understanding. Jesus said to this woman, go in peace, your faith has saved you. I know that these are unpeaceful times, here, in person, and online. It's like the wind that's blown today. The wind is disrupting everything. And there's not a lot of peace to be found. But there is a peace. Remember when Jesus says, peace, my peace, I leave with you. Not as the world gives. In this world, you will have trouble, he, he, he promised. You'll have trouble, what a promise but I've overcome the world, my peace I give you. There's a peace that Jesus gives when we kiss his feet that anchors us. Because we might be disappointed or fearful about the future, financially, politically, 
relationally, culturally, it's okay to not feel great about the future. It's okay. But when we kiss his feet, we receive a peace that the world cannot give and therefore the, the world cannot take away. Amen? You and I need that peace. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Jesus, thank you so much for this woman. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are not just a friend of sinners. You are a forgiver of sinners. And we just come to you and we say, we are so sorry. That very often we've been curious about you, but not committed. We repent. And today, like that linebacker, we want to make a split-second decision to run for you. We commit ourselves with abandon to you. And we repent that we have often kissed other people's feet and other things' feet, but they cannot give us peace. But thank you for the peace that you give, that the world cannot give, and the world cannot take away. Please revive us. Revive your people as we pray. This week, as we join these revival groups, won't you remind us of the peace that comes at your feet as we worship? Let's stand together.